Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in IndyCar listener Q&A, brought to you by Cooper Tires. Amazing folks at Cooper Tires, whose beautiful, beautiful products do indeed power the road to Indy. The Justice Brothers, manufacturers of genuinely fine automotive chemicals and lubricants I have used. I was 16 years old. That's a fact, y'all. And also our good pals at Toronto motorsports.com, motor racing memorabilia, hats, t-shirts, models, all kinds of great stuff. Pay them a visit, please. Going to jump into your Q&A as we always do here in just a couple minutes. Tend to open the show for our new or newish listeners catching up on just a variety of goodies. Should mention that uh, our cat Rocky has already jumped up on the back of my chair licked my hair and the back of my neck and then jumped over and laid down and he is currently sleeping so that's a pretty normal day in the prude household rocky being weird um long day already my friends it is what is it 5 56 p.m i've been up for my wife and i've been up for i don't know uh 14 hours maybe Quite a while. Been a long day, in particular for her. Uh, one of the joys of fighting breast cancer is the numerous, numerous appointments that come your way on a not only weekly basis, but sometimes multiple each day. So open this morning with a very early blood draw. That's a requirement. Follow that up soon after <clears throat> with a long physical therapy appointment for her high winds where we were about a half hour away at the place that we go and awesome while sitting in the car writing a story uh, about force Indy and some changes coming to their program a sizable branch broke off the tree tall tall tree above our car and went kaboom landing on the hood and scraping the heck out of it so uh, I guess we'll get a little insurance, something rather going here. And then drove back towards home and had our pre-chemo consult and visit with our oncologist. And I can just tell you, and none of this is said for any kind of sympathy or whatever else, just on somewhat rare occasion I share these things. I've slowed down the sharing of these just because it started to feel to me like it was getting to be a bit boring. But this stuff is exhausting for folks going through a fight against cancer. And that's not a complaint against anybody or anything. It's just being a participant in it with my wife. Um, man, your, your sympathy and empathy, uh, reserves. They're just constantly being drained because you're watching someone that you love go through stuff that pushes a human being to their limits, mental and spiritual, um, just right. As if fighting the thing that is attacking their body isn't already a massive, massive task that drains all energy and all everything you throw in, all the appointments, the movements, the getting in and out of the car, and just all these things where you go, I, 
I don't know how they do it. I really don't. I watch it every day and marvel at my wife uh, and for her strength and fortitude and know that there are so many men and women uh, who you all know and love. Some of you I know are in the fight. Uh, and if it's not cancer, it's something else where you go, that's crazy uh, of what you have to deal with. So anyways, as a passenger observing this with my wife and some of the other women that I see and men that I know who are in the midst of this fight, just <sighs> a driver who's mad at me and doesn't want to talk to me or a team owner who's grumpy about this or that. It's like, man, before we were in this fight, these things would really get to me. Being honest, y'all, I don't give a flying fart. Like, cool, be mad at me, be whatever. Like, I'm just going to focus on real life and people who are fighting for life. Um, I'll leave the rest aside. So talk about the gift of perspective wherever it was lacking before. So just sharing a little bit of, of the constant fight that my wife is dealing with. And for those who ask, yes, we are making positive progress. We're almost always making positive progress. That progress comes with some nasty side effects and with some seemingly endless issues that take the fun out of life way more often than it should. But the overall fight, there's almost always progress going on there, even if it's just a thousandth of a percent gain. We're making gains. Share that because I've had someone on my mind quite a bit lately. That's another member of the IndyCar community, the awesome, the giant bundle of warmth and smiles and contributions of great things to us for many, many years, that being Lindy Thaxton. She fought and defeated colorectal cancer. Some of you may know it's returned, spread to her lungs. She shared this on social media, so I'm not telling you anything that uh, she hasn't uh, made available. Uh, know that she's uh, had surgery here. And so for those who are incredibly kind to say prayers for my wife and I, or for those who don't have a faith life of their own and just want to send good vibes from the universe, um, please, please, please uh, route those Lindy's way because that is a an amazing woman who has given so much to us in the sport. And the world is not giving back what she deserves. So through your words or through your prayers or through your reaching out on social media or whatever it might be, even if you don't get a response, um, Lindy Thaxton certainly deserves the absolute best we can give her. Uh, another friend from the IndyCar community who I know is going in for some pretty serious uh, cancer-related surgery here very soon. Uh, their name not for uh, for sharing, but 
Uh, like I said, I know some of you are, are in the fight, have a loved one, a parent, a whomever. Um, it's pervasive. It's a part of our daily lives at home, which she does her best. My wife, Shabrell, she does her best to make it as much of a non-factor as possible, as hard as that is. And um, in respect to her and following her spirit, I do my best as well to not let uh, what's going on in the home front to reach out and really um, let itself be seen too much in uh, work product or publicly. But on rare occasion, um, I'll take a moment like this on the show just to give you a little bit of an update or insight or whatever's coming to mind. So there's that. <clears throat> going to give you guys one more thing that's been on my mind, and I'm happy with the outcome here. Adamant that I had no interest after Robin died in the Miller mailbag um, becoming mine, Pruitt's mailbag, anything like that, uh, or anyone else. And there have been many who have tried to uh, get a hold of it, get hired and thinking they're going to become the next Robin and they somehow deserve the mailbag. Um, absolutely steadfast in my beliefs there. And that hasn't changed. What has changed and this is as a result of flying out to Robin's memorial and spending the morning, afternoon, early evening before my flight talking with, I don't know how many people, a lot, but more importantly, listening to a lot of people, uh, did not fully understand what the mailbag represented to so many people until I got a chance to fly out, be there, stand in front of people. I don't know if I raised the mailbag once as a topic on my own, but I do know that it felt like at least every other person did. And in however it was conveyed, it was all routed through missing Robin and hoping Robin was still here. The message was conveyed that they're mourning the loss not only of him, but of what the mailbag represented. And that being a loudspeaker. A loudspeaker for fans of IndyCar, in some cases folks who work within the paddock, but by and large fans of the sport, knowing that every Wednesday morning there's a pretty good chance the questions they sent in were going to be answered by Robin and that there was always an open door for those questions to be asked. I know that with this listener Q&A podcast, which, Rob, which I started with Robin uh, four years ago, however many years ago, I mean, this is an audio version of a mailbag, but the written version of the mailbag, it was made so clear to me that that needs to continue not with some version of it or random delivery of it, but really as it is, open that door back up for us to ask questions. Keep this going. We know Miller isn't coming back. 
We know no one can do Miller's mailbag. But open that door back up because that conduit, that back and forth, that ability for us to ask questions, get them answered, or maybe I've never sent in a question, but for the last 20 years, I've woken up every Wednesday morning and got to read what other fans are asking and the questions that followed. And the break in that routine, that's really not sitting well. Receive that message over and over and over again. Really was taken aback by how much the mailbag become a bedrock weekly set your clock by it this is what we do this is a part of our lives and as much as we're mourning miller's loss we're also mourning the loss of the mailbag that's the message i brought back that's the message that i shared with racer i think the monday after the memorial made it very clear as I had on the podcast and for anyone who asked there will not be a Pruitt's mailbag period zero interest in that I did tell my folks at racer though that I do believe a racer's mailbag racer's IndyCar mailbag the mailbag whatever it is whatever you call it it needs to continue No person's name should be on it because there's no one like Miller who can do it like Miller. So don't even try. If there's a belief and an agreement that truly for the sake of the fans who made the mailbag what it was for the last 20 plus years, need to open that door back up. If I can help with that, I happily, happily will help. My own, every single week, my byline on it, etc., etc. No. Firm belief that there needs to be a cast. Not saying a, a regularly rotating cast. There needs to be some consistency there. But firmly believe that we need to assemble a list. Hey, Jerry Hildebrand, uh, you're really smart and funny and got a lot of opinions and whenever you and i speak we either butt heads or agree or whatever but we've both got strong personalities and a lot of opinions and you're good at what you do so would you be interested whatever the frequency is once a month once a quarter something stepping in and doing the mailbag hey race engineer here hey series official there hey legend of the sport hey young driver hey old driver Let's put together a list and make sure that since we can never have Miller's mailbag again, what we can do is add some new components. Maybe do feature-type mailbags every now and then. Pick a theme. We're going to go back and talk about this era of the sport or this event. Just ideas. None of them firm. Can't tell you when it's going to return, hopefully sometime soon. But I am happy to say that the message I carried back from Indy and shared 
was warmly and positively received, and there was full agreement that, yes, let's do this. So I don't have answers on, like I said, when it's going to come back, exactly how often there's going to be folks rotating in it. I know for sure with the aforementioned pace of our home life and all the appointments that we have, and some weeks are insane where we're moving four to five days a week for hours and hours and hours at a time. There will be times where between home life and regular work that there's no way I'll be able to answer questions for a mailbag. But that's why we, the idea of having that five, six, ten deep roster of folks who could will hopefully make this feel a little bit more communal and add a little bit of variety to it since we're having to improvise a bit. So that made me really happy to learn this firsthand, feel, feel what folks were saying about how their life hadn't been right without that Wednesday morning fixture. And I love the fact that Racer, which I don't know if they really had a direction on what to do, uh, are in full agreement that whatever it ends up being called without a person's name on it, that mailbag needs to continue. And i got to believe Miller would be happy with that. Knowing the duty that he felt each week, I shared a little bit about this, he was so wickedly afraid of letting folks down and not having the mailbag for a week. And this goes back a really long time when I used to put the mailbag together for him and post it and do all that kinds of stuff uh, back at speed. Um, I think I filled in twice, maybe three times, but I can think of two for sure in like a 10-year span. And truly the guy would do anything to make sure the mailbag was delivered each week. So there's peace within me. Not that that matters, but for those who are curious, there is peace within me for the mailbag to continue and for to hopefully have a little bit of variety and some other voices or special features uh, that might come with it here in the not-too-distant future. So that's the update, y'all. And with that said, going to kick in a little bit of music bed. God, I think I'm, I'm kind of loving a, a new thing that I heard is possibly as a replacement for this music bed, which is going on, I think, year two, maybe? I'm not sure. Is it year three? If so, I apologize. Nonetheless, an idea for that. So we'll see what happens there. But let's get going with your questions. Got to say a massive, massive thank you. Uh, Jim Kaiser, who puts together our questions each week, he uh, took the baton from our pal, our man from Florida, Tim Falkowitz. And Jim, who's off at a uh, a business-related conference, kind enough to reach out to Tim and see if Uh, Tim could take care of us this week, and he asked me to make sure that we refer to him as the Roberto Moreno of the podcast. And for those of you who are old enough, you might get the reference. If not, uh, the awesome Brazilian driver, 
Roberto Moreno earned the title of super sub, super substitute in the early 2000s. Might have even been the late 1990s where, yeah, if someone fell off their motorcycle or had a crash or got the flu, if somebody couldn't drive, Roberto Moreno was there. So guess what? Uh, whenever Jim needs to take uh, take a week off, I'm really happy that we have Tim back. So thanks, Tim. Why don't we jump into something here as we normally do? We pick one or two topics that are a little bit deeper than the others and open the show with that. Do that proverbial deeper dive and then try and pick up the pace. Got a pretty solid amount of questions this week. I'd love to tell you there was a point in time where we didn't have that many questions come through, especially during the off season. Yeah, um, it slowed down a little bit, not a crazy amount. So thanks to all who took the time to write in. Uh, also know that in some instances, you might have asked a question uh, along with three or four or ten other people on the same subject and uh, always leave it up to Jim or, or Tim or whomever to uh, pick the one that they feel is best. So thanks to everyone who sent goodies in. We're going to kick things off with Joe Nowotny, some kid named Colton Herta. Uh, his name has been mentioned on the interwebs here. It says these and ready to buy into F1 team and place Colton Herta into a, a seat there. Stories that show up on my Google feed. Should I bother to read them? Um, couple on the subject so i'll start here i don't know how to answer this one joe that's inaccurate i know exactly how to answer this joe how do i say that this is not a subject i can really get into in any real depth that i maybe i just said that um one of the awesome things about being a reporter is you can find out things and learn things and know things. <laughs> I'm trying not to be too vague here. I'm just, I'm, I've never figured out how to do this properly. So I apologize for those who are riding along with me as I figure it out. So one of the great things about being a reporter, I guess, if you're doing your job is you learn a lot of things. Not all of those things are meant to be reported the exact moment uh, that you learn them. In August, some of you might have read a story that I wrote, which ended up kind of cracking this open about Michael Andretti trying to take control of a Formula One team, that being the Sauber F1 slash Alpha Romeo team uh, owned by the Doralton Capital folks. Is that them? Or do I have that? Anyways, owned by a venture capital firm. Um, Put that out in the universe in August. Can say that some of the things that have bubbled up late last week, over the weekend, early this week so far, um, knew about those things as well for reasons that will maybe be worthy mentioning at a much later date, later in the year probably, but who knows, maybe next year, whenever. I'll go into some of the reasons why some things were placed into print, other things were not. Just share that it's not uncommon when a reporter learns things, you can spot the, the hot-button topics within them. Or you get a feel. You go, oh boy, I'd love to report this facet. I'd love to put that 
sponsor, person, driver, engineer, whatever his name in the thing. Let me get a feel, because I think there might be a little something here or there that might be a little too hot for right this moment. And so it's not uncommon to reach out to whomever it is on whatever subject and say, hey, on background here, uh, know about this. I'm not calling to ask you if it's true. I, I know it's this thing is true, but some of these other facets, where do they fit in? If this were to come out, would this break the thing? Would this shut down negotiations if this facet got out? If this player involved here's name was publicly identified? If whatever, whatever. It's pretty common, Joe, to make those phone calls. Pretty much never see the light of day, but you make those, especially if you know the people involved. You make those calls because you're giving folks an opportunity to say, Ooh, boy, this part, if that is something that wasn't out in the world right now, that would really help us. Or, eh, hey, if you've heard about it. Other people have probably heard about it. Uh, go with it. Do what you got to do. This just happens to be one of those multifaceted or multi-layer stories with a lot of individual components where not all of them were ready for sharing at the moment they were learned. So that's about as far as I can go here. I can tell you, and I know this for a fact, many of the things you might read or have read on your Google feed about this subject, team, driver, whatever, are inaccurate. Um some very inaccurate. I'm just not in a position to tell you which ones or to write about them to clarify, at least yet. So bother to read them. Just don't necessarily buy into any of them as leading to 100% truthiness on any specific component of this overarching story. Let's go to our pal Jamie Rowe going to keep us going here on the subject who says i hope miss pruitt is glad to have you back home after your time on the road brother jamie i am too (laughs) i think i mentioned this uh but nonetheless she told me on two of the three trips take rocky with you um tired of you two and your boy energy uh me and rosie our female cat, we're going to stay home. Let us have a a girl's weekend. You dumb boys go. I I actually don't wish that I'd been able to take Rocky because he would have been insane the whole time. But yeah, she did welcome me back. She didn't put Rocky out on the balcony or uh, time to a tree somewhere just to uh, get free from him. So I think we're doing okay. Um, You say, hey, wondering... If it's an indication, there's not much to it, but others are really pushing on this Andretti Alfa Romeo F1 possibility. So as I'm troubled by the idea of Colton Herta going to F1 without having won an IndyCar title or Indy 500, how much credence do you give to these rumors? Gotta kind of stick to what I said to Joe in terms of getting into credence. 
But I can tell you that I had hoped to have it finished last night, Sunday night, and filed this morning for a variety of reasons that didn't pan out. I'm hoping to get it done tonight, but um, I've written a column, mostly straightforward column. Might be a little moment here or there of mild humor, or I don't know what, but basically a letter to Colton saying, dude, don't do it. Don't do it. Um, Don't do it. I'm with you. And so maybe telling you the column or or giving you the finer points of it, which I'm sure you maybe read a thousand points or a thousand times already and thought yourself, but (sighs) there is one driver who ended the 2021 IndyCar season with momentum unlike that I have seen from a driver closing the season and I don't know how long. Like, wow. If you end the 2021 season and go straight into 2022, he's my presumptive champion next season, period. You take that guy, the form he is on, what he and his race engineer, Nathan O'Rourke, were able to do, know that he won the last two in a row, got that. Um, But I'm thinking... Let's throw in Nashville. No, that didn't end the way that he wanted to. But if we just think about the last whatever percent of the year, four or five races, not all of them were Colton Herta ass-kicking affairs. But is there a driver who stands out more uh, than Colton over the whatever the final phase of the season happened to be? So I just think about that guy. And knowing that he was able to be as big of a badass as he was, end up closing the year with three wins, right? The only other driver who had as many was the champion. There's some down events as well. I get that for Colton. More than Pato, more than Pelot, more than Newgarden. But you think about the polls that he earned. You think about the, the overall, holy cow, this kid's lighting up the world. That's everything, Jamie, that I want to see going into 2022 and 23 and 24. He finished fifth in the standings, got that. So, you know, that's not going to make him super happy. He's 21 years old, owning IndyCar, at least to close the year. Got to believe he and the team will be able to pick up where they kind of sort of left off, hopefully smooth out some of the dips so things are a little more consistent. If he was potentially going to a top Formula One team, I'd have nothing to say. Uh, I'd be cheering him on nonstop. The fact that it could be one of the two worst teams in Formula One, that's not a character assassination or whatever else. That's just, let's look at the stats. (laughs) Where are they running right now? Next to last. Where are they last year? I think next to last or next to next to um, you know, the, the Sauber F1 slash Alfa Romeo thing, it's been one of the less awesome teams in Formula One for a couple years now, a, a while now and enough to be a trend. So even if Colton's IndyCar team owner were able to buy or take controlling interest or whatever it might be of the Sauber F1 Alfa Romeo effort, it's not going to drastically change 
next year in terms of competitive capabilities. Could do better, sure, but all of a sudden, regular midfield, there's only 20 cars in the field. Midfield would be round about 10th, right? So knowing that their drivers are nowhere near that, uh, knowing that on average the team is fighting for the kind of sort of anonymous spots on the grid, fighting for qualifying to get out of the first round of knockout qualifying. Like this is not a place where you'd say, yep, uh, one of IndyCar's best young talents, clearly someone who has the capability of winning championships and off he goes to a team that, Hey, the last race indeed, Turkey wasn't so bad, uh, finished, 11th and 12th out of the points, but nonetheless, hey, where were they before that? Yeah, they, you know, uh, I know that Raikkonen did okay, but this is a team where on average you're looking somewhere around 14th, 15th, 17th, 16th, 18th. Like you're having to look back a ways. This kid moving into that team, knowing that it's going to be a couple years, Jamie, before an Andretti and whatever sponsors and technical approach and all that kind of stuff might pull them farther up the grid. Um, That's the part that saddens me if it were to happen. So I'm with you. At 21, he'll be 22, I think, in March next year, end of March. I have every reason to believe he could fire off one, two, three championships pretty quickly here. And if he doesn't win two or three in a row, I'd expect him to be top three, provided the Andretti team is on their form in IndyCar as well. Where he might go in F1, I can guarantee you they're not on form, and nothing like those possibilities will exist. So with all that said, I'm just taking the long view here on Colton Herta and IndyCar and saying... Between himself, Pato, Polo, Renus, hopefully, who knows, Kyle Kirkwood, if he gets in there, if I'm talking about the real young next, you name it. This is a kid who could be this generation's Scott Dixon. Uh, run down the, the list of, of famous legends, you name it. He has that potential to be legendary. And sacrificing that, killing that momentum for the opportunity to go run at the back or near the back at just about every Formula One race, that's the part that has me writing a a little letter that's kind of a plea. Don't do it, man. Please don't do it. So, uh, It's going to be an interesting uh, week or two ahead, my friend, to find out more about uh, what may or may not be happening with uh, Michael Andretti and his desired acquisition. Uh, Steve Herman, you're going to close this thread asking, does Michael and company really have the money for an F1 team? I have heard a number of things that lead me to believe the answer is yes. Bigger question 
that I don't have an answer to. Money to acquire an F1 team, either in whole or controlling interest? Yes. Money to then fund it to the tune of a lot year after year after year? I don't have an answer to that. I know that with the rule changes coming next year, it's meant to turn the budget number down quite a bit. Obviously, cost caps and so on and so forth. Would have to believe there'd be no way Michael and company would look to acquire a Formula One team without a lot of forethought and planning as to whether they would be able to fund it year two, year three, year four. Uh, would not believe they would enter into any agreement to acquire without having some of that year two, three, four, whatever money already socked away or commitments to it. So, yeah, uh, when I wrote about it for the first time in August, I was aware it was real, and nothing since then, Steve, has led me to believe otherwise. Andrew Miller, you're going to crack open a second timely topic a fine young man from the uk who i spoke with this morning for probably 15 or 20 minutes by the name of jack the bean flicker harvey by the way need to say a big thanks to a group of listeners pruday the pruday listener group um there's some of y'all in there i feel like i should mention you by name I don't know if I should, so hold off for now. I can always mention it uh, the next episode, but it's a really kind and beautiful group, small collection of folks from uh, the listener group to our little podcast here who uh, they sent a care package, and it's just the sweetest thing, the sweetest, sweetest thing. So uh, my wife was just blown away by that uh, that kindness. Um, So... Just want to say thank you to y'all. Um, you make a podcast host kind of tear up a little bit from time to time. Andrew Miller says, seems like a surprise. Harvey ended up in the 45 instead of the 30. Or were we civilians just not reading the tea leaves correctly? Um, let's see. I think there's some similar items here. Uh, our pal Daniel Summersgill says, we've seen today that Jack Harvey has been announced in the 45 High VRLL entry rather than the 30, replacing Sato. Does this further indicate that Christian Lundgaard is in line for the number 30, as his rumored sponsor package will mean the drive will not be reliant on the high V money? A little bit of yes, a little bit of no here, Daniel uh, and Andrew. As it was explained to me by young Mr. Harvey, and as I put in a little analysis insight piece that went up on racer later this afternoon, he is driving the number 30 car entry, whatever you want to call it. Um, just not in car number. So now that I understand, cause I'd heard for a little while that he might be going into the 45 instead of the 30. And I didn't like y'all grasp the why. And so as it was explained to me, hey, High V just spent a lot of time in 2021, nine races, wasn't it? With uh, High V as the primary sponsor in the number 45. Done a lot of activation, 
a lot of signage and this and that you name it a lot of stuff done attached to the number 45 high v entry let's not break that trend so jack is indeed driving takuma's car slash for takuma's entry what was takuma's entry his crew you name it this is jack stepping into the 30 with the number 30 taken off the car the 45 put on and the high v branding on it so that's what this is and when he explained it i felt dumb because i don't know why i couldn't figure that out on my own before but yeah uh so there's that so whomever drives the 30 uh it will indeed be the 45 that we saw in terms of kind of structure and crew and whatnot so a little bit of a mental twist there friends uh tom firth you ask here with the harvey to rll news confirmed is it purely an indycar deal or are there plans or hopes for him to run in other championships if rll are involved elsewhere not aware of jack say doing imsa stuff with rll could that change possibly um for sure but i'm not aware of that really being a thing so the one aspect that jumps out obviously historically say colton herta for example uh he's part of the rolex 24 daytona winning bmw team rll effort here not so long ago there was a time where he was young and learning in indy lights and didn't really have anything going in indycar because he was an indy lights and so his dad wanting him to gain some bigger knowledge in a factory motorsports program helped arrange with uh, his old pal and former boss mr ray hall for colton to attend those races as many as he could and watch and learn and observe and whatnot and from there and the team getting a feel for him and bmw getting a feel for him they said yes uh, this child has talent and so from there that expanded a bit did some driving all pretty cool um settled down for sure uh in recent years but i would say that despite jack expected to be awesome for rll and indycar driving a honda uh, i would say it might be a greater ask for rll to then see if bmw would want to add him to their endurance roster in either a gt car or a prototype which they'll be running here starting in 2023 in imsa so would love to see jack in lots of places tom just don't know if uh, that bmw factory effort is indeed going to be the best fit for him uh coming back to daniel to wrap this part up here we'll see what gets announced um i put the number in that i heard about how much lungard was bringing I initially put that in my silly season thing and then pulled it out. Not totally sure. Well, I know why, uh, but it's a real number. Like it's a real number that I've heard and I've heard it enough to make me believe that it's uh, a solid thing. And so assuming that is the case, uh, boy, I don't see how anyone other 
then Christian Lundgaard is confirmed in the 30. So if someone else is confirmed, I'd say something would have had to fallen through with that funding. So there's that. Damien IndyCar Brit, you're asking about turn one here. Uh, I'll try and get to that maybe in a somewhat future episode. Just want to thank you for sending that in. Uh, Jeff Strobel. Hey, Jeff. Since I was really hoping that the 500 run would open up more opportunities for Simona Di Silvestro and Pareto Autosport. Says, oh, it doesn't look like that will happen, nor do I think Tatiana Calderon will likely end up in a Foyt car. It's interesting. Says, how valuable to the series do you think having a credible female driver would be, and who is next? Boy, you and I are asking ourselves the same thing right about now, Jeff. Have heard that uh, Rocket does indeed have um, pretty significant interest in young Mrs. Calderon making her way to IndyCar for more than just that one test that she did. So will that end up actually happening? What year would that end up happening? What team? Again, things I don't know, can't tell you. But I am aware that they think very highly of her and do have a desire to see her here. So there's that. How valuable to the series. It's an interesting one, Jeff. And for this reason, and I was just speaking with the driver before we started recording on this exact subject, I think the known value is high. Hey, boy, if this is a 33-driver sausage fest at the Indy 500, uh, hmm, yeah, again, the 33 best qualify, so regardless of gender, uh, the best are going to be in the field. Sure seems a little silly, though, to believe that a woman isn't or couldn't be among those 33, maybe the best of the 33, or among the best. Whatever the answer might be, if you have something where only 33 positions are available and it's non-gender specific, I think it always stand out as a little bit odd where you go, well, if it's all one gender, that'd be bizarre. What if it was 33 women? (laughs) What if the Indy 500 was 33 women? That'd be really strange, right? Really strange. By the odds, you'd think one man would squeak in somehow. So how crazy then to flip that around and say, if it weren't for Beth Peretta, Roger Penske, uh, Money Lion and all the sponsors that came on board, Porsche for making their factory driver, Miss Di Silvestro, available. If it weren't for a coalition of the willing, the last Indy 500 would have been yet another with out a woman racer in one of the cars. I just say that because the value of having a badass woman in the field was evident based on the effort made by Roger Penske to make a car available, make some crew available. Uh, a lot of folks came together to prove that there's value. Is that one and done, though? Is that something where Beth needs to go and find everything on her own? Need to catch up with her to find out where things are at, but I can tell you, like you... I just want to hear about Simona and Beth and a five-year deal. 
10-year deal, whatever, or name another woman to drive the car who is badass. And there are more than a few. Jamie Chadwick, Alice Powell come to mind immediately. Get those women in Indy Lights cars, Indy cars, whatever it is. Get them here. They're badass. They really, truly are. And again, they're not the only ones, but probably the two that jump out as the most ready. Going to have to come back to this, Jeff, here, maybe in the form of a story sometime soon. Not exactly sure where this lives as a priority for IndyCar in terms of the race for quality and change. I don't know. That's the answer. I do not know. Heard things that make me believe that budget could be the thing that makes one or more programs, one or more initiatives look radically different when 2022 gets here. Um, so that's, that's maybe the heart of things. I think we can say that from a moral standpoint, an effort to be more inclusive, an effort to have drivers, crew members, owners, you name it, across all spectrum of nationality, gender, etc. I think most of us can agree, hey, that's a good thing because that's an accurate representation of the world we live in. So since there are women of all color, men of all color, just every orientation, you name it, that watch IndyCar racing, that buy tickets, wouldn't it be smart to then have the series look like a pretty decent reflection of those consumers? I think the answer is yes. If things are not happening in terms of this woman, this person, this whomever is being given an opportunity where otherwise they would not have one, I think many of us would agree that's maybe not a bad thing. For this to pop up and for the high, we want to be more inclusive and we're going to put money behind this and put action behind this. If there's a retreat there in any way, if there's a retreat there in any way, you have to wonder uh, what's going wrong or what's changed to make it that way. Uh, Jeff Zernaski, say, Marshall, positive thoughts to you, your wife, and the cats. In your time following working and covering the sport, uh, which year had the craziest silly season? Says, what was the craziest silly season rumor you've heard in your time in the sport? Oh, boy. You're putting me on the spot here, Jeff. But that's what you're supposed to do. Boy. There were some pretty good silly season bits happening end of the 2000s, beginning of the teens here. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if crazy, but when we were coming out of the, uh, what was it, 2010 season, really when the next generation car and the uh, all that stuff was developing, some of the names of manufacturers popping up were kind of eye-watering. Miller and I got into... Two, maybe three arguments ever. The first one was Chevy coming in. 
having covered a lot of sports cars to start off my reporting career, had some pretty solid, solid relationships on that side, and especially with GM, and had heard, and it felt like it might have been the same day, who knows, maybe from the same person, but um, he and I learned about Chevy coming in seemingly within about an hour of each other. Can't tell you if he was first, I was first. I just know that we both sent notes in to speed that, hey, we got a big one here. And then there was Lotus, and he and I butted heads in this a little bit, and then we realized, you know, and granted, he was the super veteran, and I was the guy who wasn't. But, uh, you know, there was a little bit of like, hey, kid, know your role. And I'm like, I appreciate what you're saying, but uh, look, we've both got this. And so however it is you know i've earned it just as much as you so let's figure this out and we did and i think did a dual byline story or whatever i think it was our first but that off season i would say jeff was was pretty darn good because from chevy to lotus which seemed super promising to rumblings of what's next for uh danny boy dan weldon to couple of other things going on it was uh i remember that off season being really interesting things obviously then developed in 2011 uh, then we had the new formula debut in 2012 that pops out as pretty interesting i think and i apologize if i don't remember the exact year but uh mid 2010s maybe more i don't know end of 2013 end of 14 whatever it is some of the stuff with uh manufacturer related bits ganassi boy not happy with honda and they are leaving as soon as they can rumor rumor, and they did um then obviously michael andretti's team chevy 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 and then hey honda and some of those tug of wars that you hear about those are really fascinating you hear some of the stuff about i don't know if this is like most exciting ever but um you hear some stuff uh, and this is not necessarily i don't know if it's the craziest but you hear rumors about some pretty big plays this team's going after that driver no way I write it off as like, yeah, whatever. Someone pulled it out of their butt when they were drunk one night at Charlie Brown's or wherever else. Um, And then you find out like a year later, two years later, if not from the driver, maybe it's not from the team, who knows? Maybe it's from a agent, whatever. You find out like, oh no, that was real. (laughs) They really did make a run at so-and-so, but then that driver's team owner found out about it and threatened to kill the team owner or whatever at the other team who tried to go behind his back and like i won't get into the who and what that's a real thing though where i'm like and so privately i do love trying to solve some of these things even when i know they're years past opportunity is not always right to ask these questions but when those opportunities do present themselves hey Remember like three years ago, there was this rumor that you tried to do this thing. Is that what it was? And not always, Jeff, but sometimes you will get folks that go, 
yeah, actually, <laughs> it is. And my eyes go wide open. I'm like, all right, we got to talk. Oh, you know, no, this is all too secret. And I'm like, that's fine. Hey, this is between us, but just for my sake, because I did spend some time chasing this. Was there anything there? And you find, again, you find out some of the details. And you're like, oh, man, if that team had gotten a hold of that driver, they would have changed their trajectory in the sport like you wouldn't believe. So and some of that stuff, I mean, I'll share this and I don't, it falls into the silly season, but there's something that I'm aware of from last month that I'm not sure if it'll ever go into print ever. It was a what type deal. Um, it might go in an autobiography if I ever think I'm worthy to write one of those, but it's just, yeah. And again, I don't want to say it's like a silly season thing. It happened during the silly season, but yeah, there are things like that, Jeff, where you go, Oh boy. (laughs) In our little niche world of IndyCar, right? This isn't football, basketball, whatever. Like even in our little world, um, it's there's still things that happen that I am just I cannot believe they are real, uh, but they do happen. Uh, why don't we go to Greg Fetchick? Hey Marshall, what can a USAC guy bring to the Indy Light Series? Considering that USAC is all ovals all the time, or is it more about his management skills? Same question I asked myself, Greg, when I learned of the news, and was quickly put at ease understanding that Levi probably can't tell you the more intricate aspects of what an Indy Lights car is, but he certainly knows about developing talent, being a young talent himself at one point in time and having to develop himself, uh, being involved in the team owner side, knowing that USAC and short track racing in general on the serious level is built upon, you know, 17-year-old such-and-such is coming in and kicking butt and taking names. So culturally, it's a perfect fit. It's the managerial side where I think that is what stood out. Hey, this is a person who understands running racing series, uh, all the aspects of it from the promoter side to the scheduling side to the partner side to the you-name-it side. Um all those things stood out as very positive when it comes to hiring Levi. Another thing I'll mention, Greg, to close is in just about every new Penske entertainment hire that I have seen. I don't know if I've looked at any of those employees and said, there's a wild pony never to be broken. Uh, just, independent as can be i would say there's a pretty serious criteria here if anyone who's going to come in and run something be in a position of real importance for penske entertainment that you're not going to be out there off the reservation doing the things that you see fit uh pretty confident in saying and yeah that's not speaking ill of mr jones but uh, while I'm sure there will be plenty of leeway, uh, I cannot think of anything that Roger Penske owns and anything that Penske Entertainment, Penske Corporation, etc. oversees 
where the wishes and blueprint of behavior and performance uh, that gets applied from the top is not carried out by whomever is hired to do whatever thing they're hired to do. So I would be confident in saying, Greg, that Levi will indeed be bringing some great ideas to this role and will also be executing the things that his bosses expect to be executed. Uh, Andy Bauer. Hey, Marshall. Continued prayers for you and your wife. Thanks, man. Any thoughts on Road to Indy drivers to watch next year as they progress up the ladder? Any future Kyle Kirkwoods in waiting? Ooh, that's a great question. There's a couple who aren't necessarily coming off of their rookie years, but who I look forward to seeing how they develop. You might as well. Uh, If we're talking Indy Lights, say Stingray Rob for sure. Is it a bit of a a reputation, self-admitted reputation of needing a couple years, right? He's not going to be the guy who blows you away, rookie in whatever step of the road to Indy ladder. So knowing that he won the Indy Pro 2000 title last year, stepped up with that advancement prize in Indy Lights, did well, but not insanely well. Um, I would say he's someone who, hoping that he's able to return next year, is able to show us a little bit more. So Stingray Rob, separate from the name, I believe there's a question from someone wanting more background on him just because of his name. I'd thoroughly recommend just doing a pretty basic Google search. You'll learn lots about the kid. Great kid. Um, He's someone who I really want to see. Really want to see how he develops in year two. Because i got to believe that there is something there that is really uh, capable. Um, If I'm talking Kirkwood-esque, Christian Rasmussen for sure. Braden Eves, two of them really do stand out from Indy Pro 2000. Uh, the former being the champion, the latter being someone returning from serious injury, uh, fought like mad and, and definitely showed that he deserves, uh, hopefully, consideration by a really strong team in Indy Lights. Would probably move, though, uh, without a doubt. Would probably move the attention, Andy, to USF 2000. What stood out to me the most this year, and it hasn't always been this way, especially, I would say, in recent years, is USF 2000s usually had one or two standouts. Yeah, this year we had a number of standouts. Kiko Porto obviously winning the title. That kid, he is very good. Extra bonus part, he's Brazilian. And as someone who's grown up in the sport with Brazilians just being integral, whether it's cart, whether it's champ car, whether it's whatever, like a Brazilian pipeline of talent making its way up to and then doing great things in IndyCar, that's just part of what makes me happy on the inside. Don't want to put too much on the kid's shoulders, but knowing that he won the USF 2000 title, did it by winning a lot of races. <laughs> um, he won a lot of races, did incredibly well, and was very consistent on the weekends where he wasn't winning. Um, he really jumped out to me as, as someone who I think is destined for some pretty cool stuff ahead. 
am I going to say he's the next Kirkwood? No, uh, nobody's the next Kirkwood other than Kirkwood. Um, Michael D'Orlando was hoping he'd do well. Kid's got a great personality. Also got some pretty serious talent too. He really stood out this year. Now I apologize, Yuvan. It is just a byproduct of my brain not always being my friend. Your last name, which I should be able to pronounce with ease, because it's really not that hard. It's my limitation. Yuvan Sundaramorthy. Sundaramorthy. I'm a phonetic flow guy, and I struggle there. Uh, Yuvan ended up finishing third. Looked like at least earlier in the season, like he might end up finishing first in the standings. Nonetheless, definitely someone who I can't wait to see continue uh, to develop. Uh, Josh Pearson and Josh Green both had some very solid aspects to their season. I don't know, you know, exactly what um, what next year should be for them. Is it? another season of USF 2000 is it do we go to Indy Pro not sure uh Nolan Siegel jumped out uh Thomas Nepview from Canada he stood out Christian Brooks as well stood out didn't finish the season but okay uh still did fairly well our man Miles Rowe got that one emphatic win as the Force Indy team got its start this season. So not saying all these kids are, are future IndyCar champions, but top three-ish, top four, I really think there's something there. And for that, I'm very thankful. There just seemed to be a lot of depth. And winning a USF 2000 race definitely was going to require some extraordinary driving and talent uh dear lando again i i really like how strongly he came on mid-season is really where he uh maybe did his best work or most effective work but nonetheless he did have a strong close to the year so between kiko michael and yuvin i would say without a doubt andy you've got some uh really good options there to follow um like i said not as if indy pro 2000 didn't have a couple of standouts for sure um, I guess the the if we just come back to indie lights though to close, um, know that Kyle's going to be moving up. Definitely, am fully confident that uh, David Malukas will be moving up. Um, Devlin De Francesco we know is expected to be confirmed at Andretti Autosport here sometime soon. Um, there's some others for sure. Uh, others who. I hope to see come back to Indy Lights and demonstrate that they've got a little more than what we saw. Daniel Frost, a rookie, right? So glad that uh, we saw him in action. Then he got a year of learning. Would think he would be well positioned for uh, a return and maybe sh- maybe showing us a little bit more. Um, Toby Sowery obviously cut his season short. No, he wants to get to IndyCar. Uh, Alex Peroni um, cut his his season short as well. wasn't going exactly as he'd hoped at Carlin. Rasmus Lind, we got him back on the road to Indy, and he's someone who I'd love to see uh, in a top Indy Lights team to see what he is capable of. Uh, Manuel Suleiman as well. 
Love to see him continue, hopefully, where my 2022 hopes land the most for Indy Lights. I need to reach out to uh, Linus Lundqvist to find out what his options might be for next year. I don't know if the funding's going to be there for a return to the uh, Global Racing Group slash HMD family, but kid definitely seems like year two knowing that at least for Malukas, Malukas, his teammate, was not new to lights. Uh, Kirkwood, new to lights, but again, we kind of know that he's a different creature. Did feel, as the season went on a little bit, that Linus would benefit from another year. Uh, His teammate, Benjamin Peterson, definitely hoped to see him back, expect to see him back in lights next year. If I had to look at, if I'm assuming... Uh, Linus, Benjamin, Daniel, Stingray, and who knows who else might be back. I mean, if it's not Linus, it's going to be Benjamin as champion. Again, who knows if someone else from uh, another series uh, steps up or or comes across. But there is some real talent there. So Linus, I like that kid. Benjamin, I thought, really came a long way. I mean, he's stepping up, right? So that he definitely had growth to make. And I would say he did that for sure, enough to where I'd have to pencil him in as one of two, maybe three. Like, if they don't win the title in 22, I'd be shocked. So somewhere in there, hopefully there's a number of names for you to uh, to root for. All right, going to grab, uh, let's see, grab a handful more, and then we're going to say farewell to this episode uh gonna do as i sometimes do and go in reverse order from uh the last question here just above the red line of death grant stouter says aj foyt call robin miller poison for poison pen are there any nicknames the drivers have for you that attack your character mildly says if not uh we need to come up with a few not that i'm aware of grant and the aware of part is the heart of that sentence not that i'm aware of i have to assume there are and if they do have them i hope they're good right if it's just fat ass or you know if it's just some of like the easy ones where you say hey that person's fat so we'll call them slim that person's tall so we'll call them shorty you know if it's some of the obvious ones i'm like okay you know mp Hey, initials, I get called MP by a lot of folks. Uh, Marsh, that's one that I hear from a select group of people, and they either know me well or just love the little contraction for Marshall. So uh, folks who really, really liked my dad called him Marsh. So when I hear that from somebody, uh, I immediately go to like a little warm fuzzy place uh when i think about folks using that to refer to my dad and get his attention and uh so yeah uh, they then usually say something really horrendous about me but i don't know so again nicknames are you know those are not things for folks to bestow upon themselves so uh whatever it is that will attack my character mildly to excessively the challenge is on grant i invite you to lead that call and whatever it is if it doesn't make me laugh or if it doesn't sting, job not done. 
Uh, Sam Johnson says, hope you and your wife are doing well. Thanks, Sam. Not sure if this is the first time uh, I'm reading one of your questions, but if so, thank you. So suppose ESPN were to do a 30 for 30 documentary about something in IndyCar besides the obvious choice of the split. What lesser known among uh, the general public, at least, stories do you think might make for an interesting watch? Well, I wrote about one of them earlier this year, and that was Cart's ill-fated visit to Texas Motor Speedway, where physics made it impossible for the race to take place and drivers to stay conscious like that. That's just not something we really come across in sports. And so I think having watched probably all the 30 of the 30 on ESPN's 30th anniversary, if not more, like those things where you go, wow, that's really incredible. Um, that's almost once in a lifetime. That's what jumps out here. So I think a Texas Motor Speedway 2001, uh, the kart race that wasn't, there's a lot of drama there of the track saying you need to make these changes and a lot of dispute as to who rang the alarm bell when and who was right about what and who was wrong about what and the fans getting the short end of the stick and the embarrassment for kart and that leading to carts or being one of the things that led to carts demise somewhat soon after. Like there's a lot there, Sam. I would certainly dive into that for sure. Let me try and think of one or two others. The life and times of Daniel Sexton Gurney the impact that he had on the sport. Thinking about him as a a cultural phenomenon also extends to Formula One and NASCAR and sports cars for him. I know when we look back now, and since this is an IndyCar show, we'll, we'll stick to IndyCar. When we look back now, we're talking the pantheon of all time greats. Indy 500, know that A.J. Foyt, number one or number two on just about every list, both Indy 500 slash IndyCar. Mario Andretti, same thing. Um, Again, we can throw in a few more names here for sure. They both became famous, legendary, etc. I don't know, and this happened a few years before I was born, so I've only had to read about it, listen to others, tell me about it, grasp this, um, independent of experiencing it firsthand. But there was a point in time in the mid to late 1960s where Dan Gurney, (laughs) the name Dan Gurney, caused the average American and a fair amount of other people in the world to think about motor racing. His name stood for motor racing. Uh, he was tall, good looking, well spoken, a demon behind the steering wheel, a winner of just about everything you could hope to win. 
if not second place, a front runner. Uh, advertisements on television, in print, relationships with auto manufacturers. This guy <laughs> was the core of motor racing and was received as such, Sam, by the average person. These things would change in time. That always happens, of course. New names would come along. But there was a point in time, really, when motor racing was at just about its its peak in the U.S. in terms of popularity, where this one man who did so many things, drove, designed, owned teams, and just everything, this guy was motor racing. And so I think a look into that between the famous win at the 24 Hours of Le Mans within a week, the famous win at Spa in Formula One, finishing second at the Indy 500, the aerodynamic advancements, what he did years later as team owner and IMSA, and here, like, just... <laughs> if you think about a 30 for 30 trying to deconstruct or understand the skills and impact and brilliance of a Jim Brown, Michael Jordan so on and so forth. I sure do think something about one of my heroes would be pretty amazing right there. If I had to throw one other thing here in, and this is just yet another hero, I'd be some form of 30 for 30 on the late and definitely great Jimmy Murphy, uh, first American to win a European Grand Prix, uh, that following his when, what was it, 1921 at the Indy 500, um, death, sad, crazy death, but long before that, his fearsome talent and fearlessness earning him the nickname of the king of the board tracks, tracks made from, oval tracks made from wood planks, uh, going to Europe, winning the uh, French Grand Prix, doing it in an American creation, Duesenberg. Um, I, boy, I don't know how that would be told, Sam. I don't know if that would be actors doing this. I don't know if it would be archival footage and imagery and voiceovers. This guy just seems like the most fascinating man in the world who did things that were so pioneering back then. Uh, as I wrote in a, column for road and track a couple years ago he was his era's aj foyt and so knowing how much foyt resonates over everything we still do today like yeah going back going back then to uh, do something on my man jimmy murphy um also being a san francisco bay area guy knowing that he was from san francisco like it's just one of those things where you go really Wow, like, <laughs> I don't know if, you know, just when I'm thinking back then, and yeah, we're going to win the Indy 500, see, and then we're going to go to Europe, and we're going to win there, see, and then we're going to come back, we're going to do some more winning, and all, but then we're going to die, and dying isn't fun, see, but we did it. <sighs> San Francisco's from south of Market, Soma, south of Market, rough area. Uh, it's become more gentrified these days but 
Yeah, lost his parents uh, in the Great Earthquake in 1906. And, I mean, just I think of this guy's story, Sam, and the wish part. I don't do a lot of wishing in life. I, I tend to remain fairly rooted in reality. I don't possess the skill to make real, you know, quality documentaries like this as they deserve to be told. But if I had that $50 million, see, to go make yourself a Jimmy Murphy documentary, it's, it's those kind of wishes that I have. And yeah, so maybe someone else will do it. Uh, let's go to John H., MP, I submitted this a couple time or a couple months ago, but don't think it was answered. It says most team owners are former drivers. The current drivers, who can you see being a team owner one day? It says Graham Rahal and Jack Harvey are both very business minded. That'd be my pick. Any thoughts? Graham for sure. I mean, I'll be surprised if he isn't in a non-driving ownership role here before way too long. Um, I don't know if I see a ton of others that jump out. Most who've had successful-ish careers or most who've had long-ish careers, maybe not super successful, but they've been able to do it for a while and sock away some money they all have the rightful fear of, nope, <laughs> the minute I'm done driving, there's no way I'm going into team ownership. Uh, I, I Trust me, I've seen it all. I've been here too long. I know what it's about. Ain't happening. Could I see someone like a Ryan Hunter Ray maybe transition, if not into ownership, some form of advisory, managerial, sporting director-ish type thing? Yeah, I could. Could maybe see a couple others do that, but actual putting money down, buying into a team, co-entry, or putting my own money up, or getting someone else to come along, but I'm probably still going to have to put in some money and keep it afloat for a little while. I do not see anyone that just completed the most recent season doing that. Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan Racing? With Graham Rahal really stepping in to uh, take over his dad's role in however many years' time, or share it, or is I don't know if we're going to get RRLL role. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get Rahal Rahal, let him in Lanigan Racing. Um, but I do think at some point in time here, before we're done with the decade, we're probably going to see Graham moving in there because he is that business guy. Plus, I think there's just a natural transition. Do I think Marco Andretti is going to handle day-to-day running of Andretti Autosport when his father, quote, retires? I don't think Michael ever would retire. I also think Marco's enjoying doing what he does without the headaches of big team ownership uh, day-to-day stuff. So I don't really see that. Yeah, I think we might be running out of ideas here. Uh, so yeah, I wonder how long this tradition is going to continue, John. 
Uh, Rupert Giles. How you doing, Rupert? Said, here's an off-season technical question. How is a car adjusted or modified for drivers of different heights? What parts are hard-mounted and what is adjustable? Um, also offers kind thanks to uh, everyone here in the home front. So, I'd say the, the most readily adjustable bits would be the things that are most readily adjustable on every race car, that being the pedals. So, pedal height, meaning how close they are or aren't to the uh, actual seating area where the driver is strapped in. So, obvious statement alert. For the taller drivers, those pedals are retracted closer to the front of the chassis to accommodate the need for legroom. And for the shorter drivers, those are extended closer uh, towards the back of the car to make it easier for them to reach. I'll just share this, in a, in again, in a general sense here uh, because this could apply to almost any form of open-wheel car. Um, not too uncommon, especially back in the day uh, where you could drill the holes yourself and do it uh, when chassis were made out of aluminum, even honeycomb. Uh, there'd be tracks where there'd be a bracket holding the uh, throttle brake and clutch assembly, and you could unbolt that and move that forward or back, depending on how much, right? If it was a little bit, gotcha. If it was a lot, well, obviously you're going to need to take into account, especially for uh, brake not so much throttle, a little bit throttle. Just the uh, the throttle cable back when cables were used before things went fly-by-wire. But if we are thinking about the brake master cylinders, well, the piston that gets pushed to create that pressure, well, it's connected on a, a threaded rod. And a variety of ways you can modify that or replace that, extend that. But that's really the one thing that would usually, along with the clutch uh, pedal going to the clutch master cylinder again when some cars these days no longer have that pedal for you to use but just saying throughout history not uncommon to be able to unbolt the actual whole brake assembly and move it forward and move it backwards if a significant amount uh, of space was needed one way or the other if we're just talking about ah driver that we had's 58 the one climbing in is 59 or 57 can usually just make pretty easy granular adjustments right there on the pedals to accommodate them. Uh, the other part, if we're talking about adjusted and modified for those heights, admittedly, Rupert, most of that happens in the molding of the beaded seats. Uh, and so that is very much a case where if you have someone with lots of legs, uh, lots of, of lower body compared to not as much upper body, uh, that is something where you tend to find them in the seat that's created. Their butt's not scooted forward. It's scooted back pretty much as far as it can go if needed, keeping in mind that you also don't want the driver's head popping out of the top of the aero screen. So there's a little bit of a compromise there, uh, if not sometimes a significant compromise. But how the driver is placed in that seat, what angle of inclination they have, how how far forward their behind is, therefore moving their legs to the front of the car. If it's a shorter driver, 
they're absolutely <laughs> being moved forward in that seat and it's being molded in a way that gets them as close to the pedals as possible obviously you don't want their helmet jammed into the steering wheel so uh, lots of things to factor in here rupert but uh, those tend to be the two that uh, stand out the most after that everything else in the cockpit is pretty much standard so a driver's reach to be able to access everything they need on the dash uh, whether turning the car on or off whether it's fire system you anti-roll bar adjustments and whatnot um you know that's all pretty standard uh, of needing to have the driver's hands in place where they can effectively reach everything not have their body again pressed against the steering wheel but also not have their hands outstretched so far that uh, their arms are falling asleep in the middle of a race also have to keep in mind their foot placement so yeah uh it is an art it is a genuine art of seat fitting car fitting uh measurements get taken and things are reproduced exactly so you know exactly where this pedal needs to be where everything needs to be so that if you have a driver jumping from one car to the next uh that can be done to a level to where the driver in that car sitting there in a on pit lane before they roll out more or less can't tell that they're in a different chassis uh let's see going to get to the last couple here and then say farewell uh, Fred Malky says, you're curious about heat soak and IndyCar engines. If the 500 lot was made about not being able to send the cars out for another qualifying attempt shortly after completing a run. However, in knockout qualifying street and road courses, there's typically only a few minutes between sessions says, uh, what on the IndyCar needs to be cooled. Uh, why is this only an issue at Indy and, uh, say not a circuit like long beach talking about absolute peak performance. Fred, that's the difference here. Since everybody is subjected to the same sitting between rounds in knockout qualifying, again, assuming they continue forward uh, in those knockout rounds, everyone is subjected to the same thing. So there's a sense of equality here. Would the engines perform at a slightly higher level if they were not at super crazy nuclear temperature yes i'm not saying they get to nuclear temperature but painting a little visual here place like indy as we know the difference between making the field and not making the field tends to be minuscule so the ability to adequately bring engine temperatures down so that you can not have them overheating or darn near overheating knowing that teams are trying to restrict the amount of air going into the side pods, into the radiators, because that improves speed. A lot of things done to try and extract maximum performance. Also knowing that, yes, uh, you will not be at 12,000 RPM all lap, every single lap, but for the most part, unlike a road and street course where there's braking, off throttle time, um, revving up through, you know, going up through the gears, downshifting, etc. Little minor coasting periods and so on. We're talking about motors that are wound to within an inch of their life for 
those four qualifying laps plus the warm up and not that the cool down is at top speed, but um, this is something where they are stressed to the maximum, heated to the maximum, all while teams are trying to get by on the just bare minimally acceptable amount of airflow to keep the thing from going nuclear. So knowing that instead of, hey, we've got eight cars out qualifying for the 500 at the same time, and they're all dealing with that same short turnaround time and heat soak, knowing that it is very much an individual thing. Um, that's why there's the, Hey, if you're going to get the most out of what you got, you really do need uh, a little bit of extra time to cool things down. The ability for teams to do that. There are cooling devices. There are cooling units that, could be used teams always talk about cost trying to keep costs under control so yeah a little bit of an interesting thing specific to the 500 fred um hopefully we'll talk more about rethinking some of how indycar goes qualifying at the 500 because there are some things that i wrote about and I know others have mentioned too that definitely stood out this uh this past may as not being the most awesome uh jj gertler says, let's see, following up on your discussion of race control and its ills, what about putting a current driver without a seat, say a Hinchcliffe, Sato, or whomever's left standing when the music stops, in race control? Yes, some former drivers are in there, but are arguably from a different era. They obviously haven't had the same belly aches with race control as we've been hearing lately. Yeah. A couple of quick things in this, JJ. Um, independent decisions. If you have three driver stewards in race control, make sure that, again, there, there's always... There, you're never going to have a stalemate. You're always going to have a majority rule in whatever decision about whatever potential penalty. Um, if those three are able to act 100% independently, offer their rule and have that adhered to, then I'd say the system's working. If there is someone, a senior person, for example, uh, who has some input as well, who isn't one of those stewards, who maybe has a feeling for how something should be adjudicated, I don't care who you put in those driver-steward roles, you're always going to be dealing with someone else influencing decisions. What I'd like to see, and I think this is maybe, I don't know, not a bad idea. Hey, what happens over time with driver stewards? Beefs. Beefs develop. And whether the drivers are 100% correct in saying driver steward X hates me, rules against me, he's always trying to do me dirty or whatever else, Add a second year, a third year, a fourth year, however many years to that person in the driver-steward role, it's inevitable. Even if they're perfect and have never made a mistake, it's just inevitable. One or more drivers are going to feel as if, ah, uh, you can't trust that one. Oh, that one's always going to get, oh, boy, don't, let, don't do something and have that one rule on you. It makes me wonder, JJ, if saying term limits, Right, Not saying you can serve two years and never serve again, but I don't know. What is it? 
Is it one year? Is it two years? Is it a vote? Um, I don't know, but I do like the idea of saying, we love you, you're awesome, and all those things, but we don't want deeply entrenched beliefs to manifest because you've been here long enough to where you've had enough run-ins with folks, and maybe in some driver's cases, two, three, four, ten times, that this relationship's broken. And they don't even bother coming to you after you rule against them to talk about it because they just expect you to do so. That's the thing that I got to wonder about, JJ. Wonder if it's worth for the sanctity of race control for any car to say, hey, uh, two years. You can come back two years from now, but you got two years. And if you do an amazing job, we're just going to thank you and ask you to train your replacement. And if you don't do a great job, thank you for your service. Don't need to send any emails or texts. We'll get back to you if we want you back. Don't know if that's the answer, man, but that comes to mind. Uh, But that's not specific to any driver. Um, I'd say whomever it would be. And I would hope the driver stewards would be ex-drivers. But yeah, um, maybe that's the direction to go. See Uncle Bobby's turkey <laughs> with the beating drum of sustainability that is ever present nowadays. I'm wondering if opening up the fuel regulations could drive more interest from manufacturers in the industry. Ethanol isn't going to be the future, but other synthetic fuels just might. Thoughts? Absolutely. I have said the same things, made the same declar- made the same declarations. Hope that things head in that direction. F1 has just recently said they're going to a sustainable fuel. IndyCar was saying they wanted to do that one or two years ago or three years ago. I don't know where that's gone, but it felt like that could have been a differentiator for IndyCar. And I would say that standing out is like a, whoa, great idea. If it were to be announced tomorrow, would have folks going, oh, you just got that from uh, F1, didn't you? So, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, The, hey, we're just going to keep doing the same old thing apply that to every aspect of IndyCar, and I just don't know how much longer it's going to cut it. Uh, Jürgen Binnemans. How you doing, Jürgen? I think this is the first question from you. It says, love the podcast. Well, I love that you love him, Jürgen. Thank you. It says, how about Ernie Francis Jr.? After securing second place in SRX, he mentioned wanting to race an IndyCar. He would make a great addition. I would certainly hope so, Jürgen. The... Uh, Force Indie story that I was writing, and again, I hope it's already up and you've read it by now, uh, is that Force Indie will indeed be testing Ernie Francis Jr. in Indie Lights here in the next couple of weeks. Um, I've a pretty good reason to believe that that test will lead to a full-time opportunity, and if Ernie has the kind of talent that we think he has... I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here, but uh, I know that when I spoke with Roger Penske many months ago and mentioned, hey, Ernie Francis Jr., really need to look into this kid. No idea who he was. Uh, Willie T. Ribs, dear friend. Um, I don't remember whether he told Roger and then I told Roger or I told, whatever it was. He and I both said the same thing within a short amount of time. And um, I'm glad that they're taking a look at Ernie. I can't tell you if he has IndyCar grade talent. 
I can tell you that for what he's done in Trans Am, winning five championships or whatever the crazy number is by the age of 23 and a couple of races in his debut open-wheel season in the uh, Formula Regional Americas championship run by Perella Motorsports Holding, he has shown that he is worthy of consideration for sure. What I would hope, Jurgen, assuming that everything goes forward with Ernie and he is driving a Force Indy Indy Lights car next season, is that he is surrounded by serious veterans because he has shown the ability as a young man with exceptional talent to be rapid and to have a high processing rate for new things, uh, learning, achieving, and then moving on to the next. To take a kid from kind of sort of USF 2000-ish level, a little bit faster than USF 2000-ish level, uh, and throwing him straight into Indy Lights after one season and open wheel, and then hoping, because you don't put him in Indy Lights if you don't have a hope he could one day get to IndyCar, it just tells you that one year of open wheel is not a ton in terms of a foundation. So would I love to hear that Rick Mears is coaching him up and run through the list of Penske IndyCar drivers, other drivers, uh, engineers, media, all kinds of coaching. He's demonstrated so far, Jurgen, that you can bombard him with big, imposing things, and he can process them and really excel. This is going to be a big step. One year of Indy Lights? I really hope it's two years of Indy Lights. But I think this kid's got something special. But we're going to have to find out. And he's going to make, he's going to crash, going to do some dumb things. He's going to do all the stuff that you do when you're learning drinking from the proverbial fire hose. But I'm really excited about what he could achieve if he is supported by lots of people helping to say, hey, normally you need five years or more of open wheel before IndyCar might become an option. We're going to try and do that in two and a half to three. We're going to have to coach you up a lot to uh, knock out those extra couple of years. Uh, Let's see. Ian Keyworth with Honda winning the Manufacturers Championship in IndyCar in the event Red Bull Honda win the F1 Constructors Championship. Would that be a first double in F1 and IndyCar in the same year? What? Honda did not debut in IndyCar until 1994? And I cannot think of a Honda F1 title that coincided afterwards. I know the Braun GP team was the remnants or was the Honda F1 team, but... um, I don't recall those motors in 2009 being badged as Honda. In 2009, Honda was the sole supplier uh, in IndyCar, so even they don't really count those as, quote, manufacturer titles. Um, So, yeah, I think this would indeed be a first, unless I'm forgetting something fairly significant. And I know my friends at Honda Performance Development who are listening will send me a note saying, Pruitt! Oh, oh, could you not remember? And they'll tell me where I was wrong. Uh, Cheesy Dionysus. Dionysus. 
Oh, this is great. We're we're getting back to uh, got the last couple of questions here in front of me, and so we're going to dive through them. And there are some questions we're not going to get to, but uh, if you really love them, really love them, send them back in, and I will do my best uh, next week. Uh, Cheesy Dionysus says, "How do you rate Romain Groschamp for a championship run next year? I think he can be right up there on road courses." Uh, what is the precedent for an oval rookie, more or less, to win the championship? Um, Nigel Mansell, 1993. Uh, yeah, granted, he was the reigning Formula One world champion. New to ovals, though, but yes, uh, he was amazing on ovals, too. Um, I would say Romain is going to be a top five, top six guy in the championship. Mentioned this, I think, a little bit last week. The one thing that gets kind of forgotten a little bit since Romain became just this plucking of heartstrings guy who who survived the fire and rekindled a career in a strange land and uh, became the most popular driver in IndyCar as a rookie, the one thing that hasn't necessarily come along with him is the history of making some mistakes that just seem like they should have been left to rookie first couple years of F1 Groschon. Uh, we saw a couple of those this year. Didn't see a ton, but we saw enough for me to just go, all right, they're still there. So if Romain can dial down those, the error rate, definite championship contender, know that, Seemingly everybody that ran in the top five this year had at least one significant mistake, if not more. But when I think of a Dixon, a New Garden, now a Palo, Pato, a Herta, they're not ones who are constantly or a regular threat to hurt themselves in the championship. Could be the cartoon anvil dropping, could be a couple of things, but there's a a level of consistency that is high enough with their finishes where you go, yep, they're always there, thereabouts. Does Roma have the ability to be that guy in year two in IndyCar? If he can demonstrate that, he certainly has the talent to vie for a title. It's just the smoothing out, the, the rough, the dips, uh, that's going to be the difference between uh, Roma being a title contender or someone who finishes a, a distant fifth or sixth. Uh, two to go. Thomas Gross. Say, MP, what needs to change on Alexander Rossi's team for him to live up to his potential? Is it mindset, personnel, driving style? Does it just come down to having better luck? A few years ago, I thought he would certainly win multiple titles by now. says, now I feel like it would be great if he could win one. I have a lot of theories here, Thomas. None of them that are girded by deeper acquisition of insights. I need to ring the man himself and say, hey, like our pal Thomas Gross, I would have expected you to have one title by now. I want to always present you as a title contender based on results, not just what we've seen you be able to do in the past, but hey, this guy can keep doing it. 
there certainly were a lot of Cartoon Anvil moments this season, but some also where, for whatever reason, Carr just did not have the speed. Uh, need to dive into this with him. Hopefully, he'll talk it through. Um, I'm always fascinated to learn these things, Thomas. So, assuming that I do, uh, you probably read about it on Racer.com. Look at that. I snuck in a promo. Uh, we're going to close here with Steve Bonek. Says MP, relatively new listener. Asked a couple questions, but none have made the show yet. Maybe this is the one. I apologize, Steve, and I need to apologize to you and some others that uh, I know some of you send in questions and wonder, why doesn't he ever get to them? Here's my admission. I pretty much never looked below the red line of death that Jim or Tim put in place. And so I'm not putting it on them. There's no blame here. Just I asked them, got a lot of questions. No way we can get through all. Pick the ones that you like most or think fit the week the best. And I just need to do a better job of looking below the line and seeing some of those that uh, names like yours that maybe you've sent in stuff multiple times that I haven't gotten to. So I apologize. Truly, um, I need to do better there. Question. Says to pass the time during the off season, other than listening to your unpolished turd of a podcast, do you have any book or movie recommendations? So you know what I'm going to recommend for a movie. Yeah, I'm going to recommend Driven if you haven't seen it. Um, Sylvester Stallone's hate letter to the world of IndyCar racing. I watched the Schumacher documentary on Netflix. Was supremely disappointed in that. Um, for those of you who care, want to know why, or maybe share a similar opinion, uh, send in a note for next week's show and let's discuss it. I'll, I'll spare the details here, but yeah, wow, that, that saddened me. Um, what else should you watch? What is it? Is it the real wives of NASCAR or something like that? Sean Heckman, my, uh, old pal who, uh, started dinner with racers and coached me up on how to start this podcast. Um, he pointed me towards that. I, I don't think I had the name exactly right, but it's apparently available on Amazon Prime. And it's on been on my to-do list to watch because he says it's so bad that you just have to see it. So um, don't take my word for it. Take Sean Heckman's word for it, uh, Steve. Real Housewives of NASCAR or similar and see what comes back. Book-wise, uh, Alan Sir Jr.'s new book, I've had a chance to look at some chapters in digital form. Um, wow, wow, for sure. Uh, would read, would get that, read that. Um, I apologize that I'm forgetting the name. Uh, but if you type in Alan Jr. autobiography, it should pop up. I'm trying to think of something else that's new or new ish. I've only had a chance to look at a small amount of it. Uh, John Oriovitz's The Split is everyone who has read the whole thing has told me it's really good. I just had a chance to crack open the first couple pages and have seen nothing that would lead me to believe otherwise. So the split for sure, if you want to learn about the era where IndyCar said, Hey, we got a good thing going. Let's make sure it stops. Um, that would probably be the other one that jumps out. Uh, there's some other, other books as I'm turning and looking on my bookshelf, there's way too much clutter on them for me to see, but I know that there's 
one or two for sure. So don't hesitate to send this in more than once, Steve. And not necessarily next week, but, you know, give it a week or two or whatever. And uh, I'll try and look around and come up with some more. And especially during the off season, I would appreciate if you all to close the show would do the same for me. Granted, don't really have the, the budget to go buy books, but if it's a 99 cent Amazon prime or whatever rental, uh, of whatever documentary or silly, whatever related to motor racing, let me know. And, uh, happy to consume that when I'm able. All right. I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Be back to you here in a day or two with our guest, who is... I have no idea. I'm still thinking about it. I'm struggling during the offseason, y'all, to come up with guests that interest me. Probably the wrong approach. I should be asking y'all to tell me who you want on. So, why don't we do that? Give me some ideas. Be one on the show this week, next week, whatever. Uh, send me a DM or publicly on whatever social media platform and uh, give me some good ideas. All right. Speak to you soon.